how to beat the banks at their own game. Today, we're going to talk about wealth and assets and how to keep your money in your control. Stay tuned. From Philadelphia, the home of the Liberty Bell, Financial Freedom Radio starts now. Here's your host, Raymond Jewell. Welcome, everybody, to FinancialFreedomRadio.com. Today, we're going to talk about how to beat the banks at their own game and how to create wealth and keep it within your control. But first, we want to introduce Engineer Steve. How are you today, Steve? So, And once again, you still can't hear my earphones. I'm going to fix that one of these episodes, I promise you. We're going to talk about your favorite topic today, Steve, and that's the banks. <laughs> oh, I just had such a hassle with my bank today. I am so done with that company. It's ridiculous. <laughs> we don't even want to go down that road <laughs> no, right now. Maybe, no, you really maybe, don't. It's a family-friendly show. Maybe if we need a little filler, we might try it later on. Yeah, I'll have to, but, I'll have to uh, be careful what I say. Yeah, we've got some pretty good uh, video clips. We're going to start doing that. That's a new thing we're doing. Uh, and we're going to, some people are going to be explaining the different uh, problems with banks. So, uh, you know, maybe you, you'll, you'll have an epiphany and you can share some of your, okay. your daily, I'm down. daily stuff today. <laughs> Educate okay, me, Dr. Ray. The mind that opens to a new idea never comes back to its original size. Albert Einstein said that, and that is our mission, to give you enough information so that you can expand your mind and have something new to walk away with. We call it a takeaway. Here's another important saying. Worrying is using your imagination to create something you don't want. Think that through. Worrying is using your imagination to create something you don't want. Let's create something in your imagination that you do want. And imaging is key to whatever we're, we're talking about in, uh, in wealth creation. Imaging and visualization is very critical. Um, and, you know, another, it, it reminds me of another saying that I, I hear, and uh, it's so true. Good decision making many times begins with bad ideas. And a lot of times we have a bad idea and we learn how to navigate around it. And that's what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to dig into the financial institutions and make good decisions using some bad strategies. Uh, the financial, but first let me go through a little kind of a, a monologue here. Uh, the financial institutions have not always been the pariah they are today. Uh, before the advent of credit cards, the banks were lending money for cars, homes, and the like. They weren't lending money at usury rates, and that was against the law years ago. But credit cards taught them that they could collect money on a systematic and ongoing basis. There used to be a rule uh, that the banks had to follow what was called the Glass-Steagall Act. And the Glass-Steagall Act is, um, a law that was passed in 1933, and I think that's slide two, Steve, um, that separated investment banking from retail banking. And investment banks organized the initial sales of stocks, they called uh, IPOs, initial public offerings. 
They facilitated mergers and acquisitions. And banks actually had savings accounts. They had checking accounts. They lent money for cars and homes, but they couldn't branch out into insurance. They couldn't get into other areas. Uh, a great example that we want to look at today is Capital One. I saw an ad the, the other day on TV where now they're, they have their own banks that are kind of in a, a, a coffee shop, Starbucks-type format. So where you go in there, you can get coffee, you can get a sandwich, and you can open up your, your bank account. When the Glass-Steagall Act was around, they couldn't do that. Remember, Capital One started as a credit card company, not a bank, and now they're branching into banks. So that's a great example to see how when the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed, uh, and I'm going to read you a little bit about that, how these other companies stepped up. So let's dig into the Glass-Steagall Act. I got a lot of stuff here in my stack of notes. Um, Ray has paper. Look out. Uh, yeah. The Glass-Steagall Act was passed in 1933. It separated investment banking from retail banking. Investment banks organized the initial sales of stocks called initial public offering. They facilitated mergers, and as we just talked about a minute ago, many of them operated their own hedge funds. Retail banks took deposits, managed checking accounts, and made loans. But in 1999 or 98, President Clinton repealed it. And there is no longer the Glass-Steagall Act. So now banks can do anything they want. But let's dig further. Let's talk about where they were able to make loans, uh, manage checking and savings accounts. By separating the two, re the two retail banks were prohibited from using depositors' funds for risky investments. Only 10% of their income could come from selling securities. They could underwrite government bonds. Most important to depositors, the act created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and we all know what FDIC is. It insures your accounts. The law gave power to the Federal Reserve to regulate retail banks. It created the Federal, the Federal Open Market Committee, which determines the rate, the short-term rates that they can uh, lend, allowing the Fed to better implement monetary policy. The Glass-Steagall Act prevented investment banks from having a controlling interest in retail banks. So investment banks couldn't be retail banks, retail banks couldn't be investment banks. They had to find another source of funds separate from depositors' accounts. It prohibited bank officials from borrowing excessively from their own bank. Remember, all of this was created in 1933 as a result of the Depression when they had a run on the banks. Um, so the act regulated, introduced regulation Q. It prevented banks from paying interest on checking accounts. It also allowed the Fed to set ceilings on interest paid to other kinds of deposits. It was passed by the House of Representatives May 23rd, 1933. I'm not going to read you all this whole thing here, but the purpose was to permanently, Glass-Steagall sought to permanently end bank runs and the dangerous bank practices that created them. Congress passed Glass-Steagall to reform a system that allowed the failure of 4,000 banks during the Great Depression. 
It had debated the bill during 1932 and redirected bank funds from fueling stock speculation to building industrial capacity. So the whole reason was to keep the banking, the bank, the two types of banks separate. Um, and that's a good thing, right? Now, that's a good thing. Yes, it is. But in 1930 or 1998, it was repealed by the Clinton administration. So now you're seeing banks being insurance companies and they have their own hedge funds. They have their own insurance companies. They, they're in all sorts of things and they control so much money that it's the downturn in 2008 is speculated to be caused by them. Although they blame it on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the banks had the money. They had huge amounts of money. And if they decided not to lend it out, then that created people panicking. And thus we had the downturn in 2008. And there were some other reasons for that happening too. So let's look at the different types of banks. There's there's uh, uh, four major types of financial institutions, including central banks, retail and commercial banks, internet banks. And when we break it down further, you have depository institutions. And these financial institutions get their funds mostly through public deposits, your local bank, your local savings and loan. Insurance companies uh, collect premiums and pay compensation if certain events occur. They're not a bank, but yet they have money that they take in and they put it on deposit to pay death claims later on. Pension funds are another uh, depository of money. Securities firms, there are firms out there, Goldman Sachs, they're not a bank, but they sell securities and, and hedge funds and all that. Finance companies and federal credit agencies, so the whole point of laying this out is so you understand the different types of banks and, and when they repeat, repealed the Glass-Siegel Act, what occurred was the banks now could merge their services together. It didn't keep them separate. So that caused more of a problem because who are they, who's their fiduciary responsibility? Is it to you? Is it to uh, the uh, uh, depositors? Or is it to the stockholders? And now that they're in mutual funds, can they take your, your money that they're managing and sell you a mutual fund where they double dip on the commission? And if you have a trust account with a bank, they're now investing your trust money into their mutual funds and they're collecting fees from that. So Seems it's shady. a big problem. It, it really does. I mean, and you know, many people are confused by it because they can't understand why they don't get personal attention. They go to their bank down on the corner and they want the, the bank manager to give them personal attention. All that bank manager is a figurehead. Usually, usually, young people right out of college managing banks and they don't have a clue what they're doing. So that leads us to our 
our four rules of financial institutions that I've talked about over and over and over again. And now that you can see the problems that exist, let's dig into our four rules. And these four rules have gotten me in trouble many times with financial people because they think I'm taking shots at them when I'm really not. So what are the four major rules? Rule number one is to get your money. Rule number two is get your money on a systematic and ongoing basis. Rule number three is to hold on to it for as long as possible. And rule number four is to give it back as little as possible. So let's look at rule number one, to get your money. Now they've got, with the repeal of Glass-Siegel, they've got a multitude of ways to get your money. All these papers here. And so they now can get your money for insurance. They can get it for mutual funds. They can get, they have hedge funds. They got savings accounts. They got checking accounts. Who knows? Next thing you know, they're going to be uh, a grocery store. I don't know. You know, Capital One now sells food in their so-called bank. <laughs> that that blows my mind. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so uh, uh, let's look. I got a video that I want to show you that supports get your money, and it it's video number one, and I got this off of YouTube. And uh, I don't endorse these people or, or anybody that's on these videos, but I uh, I just thought the information was it, it's supportive of uh, of our four ma major uh, rules. And number one, get your money. Uh, Steve, you want to play that one? So Mary said to me, "Hey, Larry, all we hear about is how well the stock market's doing, but this bank mutual fund that we own uh, hasn't done very well, and we just don't understand why. Can you have a look?" And uh, so I Googled the, the fund and I said to my sister, do you realize you're paying 2.3% in fees? And she said, we're paying fees? And I said, yeah, 2.3% a year. And she said, oh, well, you mean 2.3% of our returns, right? And I said, no, no, 2.3% of your total amount invested every single year, whether the market goes up or down, which means if you've owned this fund for the past 15 years, 30 or 35% of your money has been stripped away in fees. Yeah, so uh, uh, every, did everybody hear the full audio on that, Steve? Everybody heard that, Ray. Okay, so hidden in their mutual funds are fees that they don't disclose. So remember, they got to get your money, and how they get it is they've got they've got creative geniuses figuring out how to get your money, and. This is just one little clip of the ways they get it, and that's inside your, your money markets, their mutual funds. There are fees in there that they don't disclose. Now, this came to the forefront. The owner of uh, Vanguard went to uh, Congress and testified where they were hiding these fees because Vanguard was a no-free fund. It was it's a it's a mutual mutual fund, so it was owned by the depositors, and he disclosed this. I they they did apparently come up with some ways to fix it, but um, it's still they still hide them in there. So remember, they got to get your money, and they're going to do it every creative way they can. And rule number two 
is they've got to get your money on a systematic and ongoing basis. So if you have a mutual fund, they're taking those fees out on a monthly basis. So they're getting your money on a systematic and ongoing basis. That's rule number two. They figure out ways to do this that you're not aware of. Another way they blatantly do it is they say, and a lot of the financial people are out saying this, they use this as, as part of their sales tactic. Let's dollar cost average. So instead of depositing your money at the beginning of every year and let it run through the year, they say if you put money in every year, you're gonna get the highs and lows. Well, you're gonna get the highs and lows if you put it in one time versus stringing it out. But they want it on a systematic and ongoing basis. So your, your, your highs and lows are, you probably will average out about the same. It, it's just a matter of convenience, they'll tell you, but it's a systematic and ongoing basis for them to get your money. When they run the risk of telling a person to put it in on a monthly basis, that person might not deposit it that month. They might not follow through with their plan. But again, that's a matter of uh, psychology, and we're not going into that today. So they're, they're getting your money. They're getting it on a systematic and ongoing basis. And the third one is they want to hold on to it as long as possible. And they have many different maneuvers that, that uh, they hold on to it for as long as possible. And let's, let's take a look at this lady here. She has a little investment group and she'll tell you uh, about their uh, hold on to it long as possible schemes. Number one, transaction reordering. I remember the first time I logged into my bank account and something seemed sketchy. I'd woken up on payday and moved money into my savings and then taken money out to pay rent. I should have had plenty left over. But a few hours later, when I checked my account, I saw a red angry negative number. What? I scrolled down my recent transactions and noticed that what had happened is the bank said first I'd moved money into savings, then I had taken out money to pay rent, and then I got paid. Which meant they'd manipulated it to look like I had overdrawn my bank account so that they could slap me with an overdraft fee. It's a process known as transaction reordering. And while it is frowned upon, it is 100% legal. Number two nickel and dime you for already being broke. One of the most egregious ways banks can legally screw us over is with all those unnecessary fees. Notably, these fees are positioned to penalize you for being broke. For example, the monthly maintenance fee, also sometimes called a monthly service fee. This is usually about a $12 fee that the bank will charge if you do not keep an average daily balance of $1,500. That means you need $1,500 in your account every day. Another example is the extended overdraft fees. Banks will hit you with an additional overdraft fee if your bank account was negative for five days or more. And of course, ATM fees. Number three, the deposit hold. Have you ever noticed that when you cash a check using a mobile app, a little window will pop up and let you know when your funds will be available? This is known as a deposit hold. Typically when you cash a check, the first $200 of that check are available immediately, but the rest of the funds can get held for two to five business days, sometimes even up to nine business days if you're a new account holder. This policy impacts those in the paycheck to paycheck cycle the most because a deposit hold could mean that you don't have the funds available when you need to do things like pay rent or your utilities or other necessary bills, which could of course trigger more late fees. Number four, 
refusing to refund a fraudulent charge. I've been hit with both credit card and debit card fraud. It is an awful feeling when somebody else is in your bank account taking out hundreds of dollars. Luckily, I noticed early and reported it to my bank immediately, so I got all of my money back. But banks don't have to fully refund all of your fraudulent charges. But failing to notify the bank within two days could mean that you're responsible for $50 of the fraudulent charges between two and 60 days, and you could be responsible for $500 of the fraudulent charges. And after 60 days, the bank could say that that's all on you. Number five shitty interest rates on your savings account. Okay, this one isn't the absolute worst compared to refusing to refund fraudulent charges, but come on. Offering a shitty interest rate like 0.01% on your savings account is just another way banks can legally screw you over. So, <laughs> shitty interest rates. You like that, Steve? I was fantastic. So, uh, I was in there going, oh, family friendly just went out the window today. Yeah. And then the third one is give it back as little as possible. And this video is a, uh, this guy is a, a Marxist economist. Just so you know, Marxist, Marxism in, in economics is not the Marxism that you think in communism. So uh, even though this fellow has this title, uh, I'm not so sure that he's a, uh, a communist uh person but in in terms of economics they have they have a, a hodgepodge school of thought along with many other schools in economics so this one is give it back as little as possible and see if you can play video number three okay let's begin with what banks basically do we the people and businesses put money into the bank for safekeeping for record keeping and all the rest to make our payments Normally, the banks give us little or nothing for doing so, but then they take the money we deposit and lend it out. To take the most extreme example, we these days put money into a bank, get literally half of 1%, 1%, and the bank turns around and lends that money out to people who use credit cards, charging them in the neighborhood of 16, 17, 18, or more percent. In short, how banks make a big part of their money is by getting us to give them deposits on which they pay a little and then turning around and lending that money out at interest rates that earn them a lot with our money. And the problem has been that banks who love this arrangement for reasons that should be obvious have a tendency to lend out pretty nearly every nickel we give them because obviously the more of our money they lend out, the fatter the profit they take home. The big problem here is if for any reason a large number of us want our deposits back, which after all they're ours and we have every right to them, the bank would not be able to give them back to us because they've lent them out. And that has led periodically so what used to be called, honestly, a bank panic, because people panicked realizing that they might get to the bank and be told that their deposits could not be and might not ever be returned to them. So that's give it back as little as possible, because many times they can't. They've got it lent out, so they will discourage you. And I, I've got a case right now, personally, where I, the hurricane 
Irma that came through here down in South Florida in Naples messed up my roof. I'm still trying to fight with the insurance company. Now I have to take them to court because they don't want to give out the money to fix the roof and my pool cage and those kind of things. So I hope what I've done today is I've built the case for how to beat the banks at their own game. And next week, we're going to talk about use and growth simultaneously. But in all of this information that I've laid out here, it is clear that they are not operating in our best interest, that these banks are operating in the interest of the stockholders and the investors. And so we need to understand that before we can understand how to beat them at their own game. Wealthy people have used strategies for years to beat them at their own game, and we're going to explore those at our next show, which is next next week, episode, I believe, seven. Beyond seven, yep, eight? seven. Okay, so we're you want to tune in and, and listen to Use and Growth Simultaneously, how to use your money and how to grow it at the same time without putting it in a bank. So we're going to leave it here for uh, for today, and I want to thank you all for coming and listening. I hope this information was helpful, and we'll see you next week, financialfreedomradio.com. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. If you want to learn how to create real sustainable wealth like the extremely rich people do, or maybe you just want to sustain the wealth you already have, you need to check out Dr. Ray's new book, Why the Rich are Rich. Ray's been coaching clients for 35 years and has completely unlocked the secret strategies that rich people use day in and day out to grow and sustain their wealth, regardless of what's going on in the economy. His book is completely free, and you can get it by going to whytherichareRich.com and entering your email address. Again, that's whytherichareRich.com. Head over there now.